Section 28 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. The Mad Parliament, A.D. 1258, by John Lingard, Part 3. During the summer, Leicester had been harassed with repeated solicitations for the release of the two princes, Edward and Henry. In the winter, he pretended to acquiesce, and convoked a Parliament to meet after Christmas, for the avowed purpose of giving the sanction of the legislature to so important a measure. But the extraordinary manner in which this assembly was constituted provoked a suspicion that his real object was to consolidate and perpetuate his own power. Only those prelates and barons were summoned who were known to be attached to his party, and the deficiency was supplied by representatives from the counties, cities and boroughs who, as they had been chosen through his influence, proved the obsequious ministers of his will. Several weeks were consumed in private negotiation with Henry and his son. Leicester was aware of the untamable spirit of Edward, nor would he consent that the prince should exchange his confinement for the company of his father on any other terms than that he should still remain under the inspection of his keepers and evince his gratitude for the indulgence by ceding to the earl and his heirs the county of Chester, the castle of Peck, and the town of Newcastle under Lyme, in exchange for which he should receive other lands of the same annual value. At length the terms were settled and confirmed by the Parliament, with every additional security which the jealousy of the faction could devise. It was enacted, by common consent of the King, his son Edward, the prelates, earls, barons, and commonality of the realm, that the charters and the ordinances should be inviolably observed, that neither the king nor the prince should aggrieve the earl or his associates for their past conduct, that if they did, their vassals and subjects should be released from the obligation of fealty till full redress were obtained, and their abettors should be punished with exile and forfeiture, that the barons whom the king had defied before the Battle of Lewis should renew their homage and fealty, but on the express condition that such homage and fealty should be no longer binding if he violated his promise, that the command of the royal castle should be taken from suspected persons and entrusted to officers of approved loyalty, that the prince should not leave the realm for three years, under pain of disherison, that he should not choose his advisers and companions himself, but received them from the Council of State, that with his father's consent he should put into the hands of the barons for five years five royal castles as securities for his behaviour, and should deliver to Leicester the town and castle of Bristol in pledge till a full and legal transfer should be made of Chester, Peck and Newcastle, that both Henry and Edward should swear to observe all these articles and not to solicit any absolution from their oath, nor make any use of such absolution, 
if it were to be pronounced by the Pope, and lastly, that they should cause the present agreement to be confirmed in the best manner that might be devised in Ireland, in Gascony, by the King of Scotland, and in all lands subject to the King of England. These were terms which nothing but necessity could have extorted, and to add to their stability, they were for the most part embodied in the form of a writ, signed by the king and sent to the sheriffs, with orders to publish them in the full court of each county twice every year. It is generally supposed that the project of summoning to Parliament the representatives of the counties, cities and boroughs grew out of that system of policy which the Earl had long pursued, of flattering the prejudices and attaching to himself the affections of the people. Nor had his efforts proved unsuccessful. Men in the higher ranks of life might penetrate behind the veil with which he sought to conceal his ambition, but by the nation at large he was considered as the reformer of abuses, the protector of the oppressed, and the saviour of his country. Even some of the clergy and several religious bodies, soured by papal and regal exactions, gave him credit for the truth of his pretensions, and preachers were found who, though he had been excommunicated by the legate, made his virtues the theme of their sermons, and exhorted their hearers to stand by the patron of the poor and the avenger of the church. Within the kingdom no man dared to dispute his authority. It was only at the extremities that a faint show of resistance was maintained. The distant disobedience of a few chiefs on the Scottish borders he despised or dissembled, and the open hostilities of the lords in the Welsh marshes were crushed in their birth by his promptitude and decision. He compelled Roger de Mortimer and his associates to throw down their arms, surrender their castles, and abide the judgment of their peers, by whom they were condemned to expatriate themselves, some for twelve months, others for three years, and to reside during their exile in Ireland. They pretended to submit, but lingered on the sea coast and amid the mountains of Wales, in the hope that some new event might recall them to draw the sword and fight again in the cause of their sovereign. It had cost Leicester some years and much labour to climb to the summit of his greatness. His descent was rapid beyond the calculation of the most sanguine among his enemies. He had hitherto enjoyed the cooperation of the powerful earls of Derby and Gloucester, but, if he was too ambitious to admit of an equal, they were too proud to bow to a fellow subject. Frequent altercations betrayed their secret jealousies, and the sudden arrest and imprisonment of Derby, on a charge of corresponding with the royalists, warned Gloucester of his own danger. He would have shared the captivity of his friends had he assisted at the great tournament at Northampton, but by his absence he disconcerted the plans of his enemy, and, recalling Mortimer and the exiles, unfurled the royal standard in the midst of his tenantry. Leicester immediately hastened to Hereford with the king, the prince, and a numerous body of knights. To prevent the effusion of blood, their common friends intervened. A reconciliation was effected, and four umpires undertook the task of reconciling their differences. But under this appearance of friendship, all was hollow and insincere. 
Leicester sought to circumvent his adversary. Gloucester waited the result of a plan for the liberation of Edward, which had been concerted through the means of Thomas de Clare, brother to the Earl and companion to the Prince. One day after dinner, Edward obtained permission to take the air without the walls of Hereford, attended by his keepers. They rode to Widmarsh. A proposal was made to try the speed of their horses. Several matches were made and run, and the afternoon was passed in a succession of amusements. A little before sunset, there appeared on Tullington Hill a person riding on a grey charger and waving his bonnet. The prince, who knew the signal, bidding adieu to the company, instantly galloped off with his friend, another knight, and four esquires. The keepers followed, but in a short time Mortimer, with a band of armed men, issued from a wood, received Edward with acclamations of joy, and conducted him to his castle of Wigmore. The next day the prince met the Earl of Gloucester at Ludlow. They mutually pledged themselves to forget all former injuries and to unite their efforts for the liberation of the king, on condition that he should govern according to the laws and should exclude foreigners from his councils. When Leicester received the news of Edward's escape, he conceived that the prince was gone to join the Earl Warren and William de Valence, who a few days before had landed with 120 knights on the coast of Pembrokeshire. Ignorant, however, of his real motions, he dared not pursue him, but issued writs in the king's name, ordering the military tenants of the crown to assemble at first at Worcester and afterward in Gloucester. To these he added circular letters to the bishops, accusing Edward of rebellion and requesting a sentence of excommunication against all disturbers of the peace, from the highest to the lowest. The royalists had wisely determined to cut off his communication with the rest of the kingdom by securing to themselves the command of the seven. Worcester readily opened its gates. Gloucester was taken by storm, and the castle, after a siege of two weeks, was surrendered on condition that the garrison should not serve again during the next forty days. Every bridge was now broken down, the small craft on the river was sunk or destroyed, and the fords were either deepened or watched by powerful detachments. Leicester, caught as it were in the toils, remained inactive at Hereford, but he awaited the arrival of the troops whom he had summoned, and concluded with Llewellyn of Wales a treaty of alliance by which, for the pretended payment of thirty thousand marks, Henry was made to resign all the advantages which he and his predecessors had wrested from the princes of that country. At last, reinforced by a party of Welshmen, the Earl marched to the south, took and destroyed the castle of Monmouth, and fixed his headquarters at Newport. Here he expected a fleet of transports to convey him to Bristol, but the galleys of the Earl of Gloucester blockaded the mouth of the Avon, and Edward, with the bravest of his knights, made an attempt on the town of Newport itself. The part which lay on the left bank of the Usk was carried, but the destruction of the bridge arrested the progress of the victors, and Leicester, with his dispirited followers, escaped into Wales. 
misfortune now pressed on misfortune, and the last anchor of his hope was broken by the defeat of his son, Simon of Montfort. That young nobleman was employed in the siege of Pevensey on the coast of Sussex, when he received the king's writ to repair to Worcester. On his march he sacked the city of Winchester, the gates of which had been shut against him, passed peaceably through Oxford, and reached the castle of Kenilworth, the principal residence of his family. Here he remained for some days in heedless security, awaiting the orders of his father. Margot, a woman who in male attire performed the office of a spy, informed the prince that Simon lay in the priory and his followers in the neighbouring farmhouses. Edward immediately formed the design of surprising them in their beds, and marching from Worcester in the evening, arrived at Kenilworth about sunrise the next morning. Twelve bannerets with all their followers were made prisoners, and their horses and treasures repaid the industry of the captors. Simon alone with his pages escaped naked into the castle. Leicester on the same day had crossed the Severn by a ford and halted at Kempsey, about three miles from Worcester. Happy to find himself at last on the left bank of the river and ignorant of the fate of his son and the motions of the enemy, he proceeded to Evesham with the intention of continuing his march the next morning for Kenilworth. The prince had returned with his prisoners to Worcester, but left the city in the evening and, to mask his real design, took the road which leads to Bridgenorth. He passed the river near Clanes and, wheeling to the right, arrived before sunrise in the neighbourhood of Evesham. He took his station on the summit of a hill in the direction of Kenilworth. Two other divisions, under the Earl of Gloucester and Roger de Mortimer, occupied the remaining roads. As the Royalists bore the banners of their captives, they were taken by the enemy for the army of Simon de Montfort. But the mistake was soon discovered. Leicester, from an eminence, surveyed their numbers and disposition, and was heard to exclaim, The Lord have mercy on our souls, for our bodies are Prince Edward's. According to his custom, he spent some time in prayer and received the sacrament. His first object was to force his way through the division on the hill, Foiled in this attempt, and in danger of being surrounded, he ordered his men to form a circle, and oppose on all sides the pressure of the enemy. For a while the courage of despair proved a match for the superiority of numbers. The old king, who had been compelled to appear in the ranks, was slightly wounded, and as he fell from his horse, would probably have been killed, had he not cried out to his antagonist, "'Hold, fellow! I am Harry of Winchester!' The prince knew the voice of his father, sprang to his rescue, and conducted him to a place of safety. During his absence, Leicester's horse was killed under him, and, as he fought on foot, he asked if they gave quarter. A voice replied, "'There is no quarter for traitors!' Henry de Montfort, his eldest son, who would not leave his side, fell at his feet. His dead body was soon covered by that of the father. The royalists obtained a complete but sanguinary victory. Of Leicester's partisans, 
all the barons and knights were slain, with the exception of about ten, who were afterward found breathing and were cured of their wounds. The foot soldiers of the royal army, so we are told to save the honour of the leaders, offered to the body of the earl every indignity. His mangled remains were afterward collected by the king's orders and buried in the church of the abbey. By this victory the sceptre was replaced in the hands of Henry. With their leader, the hopes of the barons had been extinguished. They spontaneously set at liberty the prisoners who had been detained since the Battle of Lewis, and anxiously awaited the determination of the Parliament, which had been summoned to meet at Winchester. In that assembly it was enacted that all grants and patents issued under the King's seal during the time of his captivity should be revoked, that the citizens of London, for their obstinacy and excesses, should forfeit their charter, that the Countess of Leicester and her family should quit the kingdom, and that the estates of all who had adhered to the late Earl should be confiscated. The rigour of the last article was afterwards softened by a declaration, in which the King granted a free pardon to those who could show that their conduct had not been voluntary, but the effect of compulsion. These measures, however, were not calculated to restore the public tranquillity. The sufferers, prompted by revenge or compelled by want, had again recourse to the sword. The mountains, forests and morasses furnished them with places of retreat, and the flames of predatory warfare were kindled in most parts of the kingdom. To reduce these partial but successive insurrections occupied Prince Edward the greater part of two years. He first compelled Simon de Montfort and his associates, who had sought an asylum in the Isle of Axholme, to submit to the award which should be given by himself and the King of the Romans. He next led his forces against the men of the Cinque Ports, who had long been distinguished by their attachment to Leicester, and who since his fall had, by their piracies, interrupted the commerce of the narrow seas, and made prizes of all ships belonging to the king's subjects. The capture of Winchelsea, which was carried by storm, taught them to respect the authority of the sovereign, and their power by sea made the prince desirous to recall them to their duty and attach them to the crown. They swore fealty to Henry, and in return obtained a full pardon and the confirmation of their privileges. From the Sank ports, Edward proceeded to Hampshire, which, with Berkshire and the neighbouring counties, was ravaged by numerous banditti under the command of Adam Gordon, the most athletic man of the age. They were surprised in Alton Wood in Buckinghamshire. The prince engaged in single combat with their leader, wounded and unhorsed him, and then, in reward of his valour, granted him his pardon. Still the garrison of Kenilworth continued to brave the royal power, and even added contumely to their disobedience. Having in one of their excursions taken a king's messenger, they cut off one of his hands, and sent him back with an insolent message to Henry. To subdue these obstinate rebels, it was necessary to summon the chivalry of the kingdom. But the strength of the place defied all the efforts of the assailants, and the obstinacy of Hastings the governor 
refused for six months every offer which was made to him in the name of his sovereign. There were many, even among the royalists, who disapproved of the indiscriminate severity exercised by the Parliament at Winchester, and a possibility was suggested of granting indulgence to the sufferers, and at the same time satisfying those who had profited by their forfeitures. With this view a committee was appointed of twelve prelates and barons, whose award was confirmed by the King in Parliament, and called the Dictum de Kenilworth. They divided the delinquents into three classes. In the first were the Earl of Derby, Hugh de Hastings, who had earned his preeminence by his superior ferocity and the persons who had so insolently mutilated the king's messenger. The second comprised all who on different occasions had drawn the sword against their sovereign, and in the third were numbered those who, though they had not fought under the banner, had accepted office under the authority of Leicester. To all was given the option of redeeming their estates by the payment to the actual possessors of certain sums of money, to the amount of seven years' value by delinquents of the first class, of five by those of the second, and of two years or one year by those of the third. By many the boon was accepted with gratitude, it was scornfully refused by the garrison of the castle of Kenilworth and by the outlaws who had fled to the Isle of Ely. The obstinacy of the former was subdued by famine, and they obtained from the clemency of the king the grant of their lives, limbs, and apparel. The latter, relying on the strength of their asylum, gloried in their rebellion and occasionally ravaged the neighbouring country. Their impunity was, however, owing to the perfidy of the Earl of Gloucester, who, without the talents, aspired to the fame and preeminence of his deceased rival. He expressed his disapprobation of the award. The factious inhabitants of London chose him for their leader, and his presumption was nourished by the daily accession of outlaws from different parts of the country. Henry summoned his friends to the siege of the capital, and the Earl, when he beheld from the walls the royal army, and reflected on the consequences of a defeat, condemned his own temerity, accepted the mediation of the king of the Romans, and on the condition of receiving a full pardon, gladly returned to his duty, leaving at the same time the citizens to the good pleasure of the king. His submission drew after it the submission of the other insurgents. If Llewellyn remained in arms, it was only with the hope of extorting more favourable terms. The title of Prince of Wales, with a right to the homage of the Welsh chieftains, satisfied his ambition, and he consented to swear fealty to Henry and to pay him the sum of 25,000 marks. The restoration of tranquillity allowed the king to direct his attention to the improvement of his people. He condescended to profit by the labours of his adversaries and some of the most useful among the provisions of the barons were with other laws enacted by legitimate authority in a parliament at Marlborough. To crown this important work, and to extinguish, if it were possible, the very embers of discontent, the clergy were brought forward with a grant of the twentieth of their revenues, as a fund which might enable those who had been prevented by poverty to redeem their estates according to the decision of the arbitrators at Kenilworth. 
the outlaws in the Isle of Ely were also reduced. The king's poverty had disabled him from undertaking offensive measures against them, but a grant of the tenth part of the church revenues for three years, which he had obtained from the Pope, infused new vigour into his councils. Bridges were thrown over the rivers, roads were constructed across the marshes, and the rebels returned to their obedience on condition that they should enjoy the benefit of the dictum of Kenilworth, which they had so contemptuously and obstinately refused. End of section 28